You're listening to Counterculture Christian with Thomas Hill. What's up, guys? How we doing? Welcome back. Excited to be back. I know we've been gone for a couple of months. I know that we've been, you know, we've been out. Um, yeah, so we're going to get into that a little bit. Where, where I've been, what I've been up to, and kind of get back into the swing of things, talk about what the schedule is going to look like, how podcasts are going to be done moving forward. I'm super excited to be back. I've got a lot to talk about, so we're going to dive straight in. Yeah, so we are so back. That's kind of the theme of this intro part here. Where I'm just going to talk a little bit about what I've been doing. So obviously from last time that you guys listened back in January, I've moved back to college at Liberty University got moved in there, had to ship all my podcast stuff, that took a while, and then in the months after that, I just ended up being traveling a lot for several things, one of which we're going to talk about today, Um, but I was definitely able to travel to D.C. for the March for Life, I've been to D.C. two other times after that, and then to Richmond, all for pro-life events, for pro-life things that have just conflicted with scheduling, had some swim meets, and so I haven't really been able to sit down to get back into podcasting. But we're back now. We're going to be in the swing of things regularly again. We've got everything ready to go. So um, let's dive into it. Remember to keep up with our show on Instagram at CounterCultureChristian. You can keep up with me at my personal account at Thomas.Hill04. If you guys have any feedback for our show, we'd love for you to send it to ThomasMHill04 at gmail.com. So, yeah. So, the reason that I've been traveling so much, January, a huge time in the pro-life movement, always filled with, like, the March for Life, National Pro-Life Summit. Got to go to D.C. for that, see a lot of my pro-life friends. It was a really exciting time. And then after that, in the month of February, some events developed with a situation called Justice for the Five, which is what we're going to be talking about today as our first topic. And so, I'll get into that in a minute, but because of things that are going on with Justice for the Five, I ended up traveling to D.C. for two weeks in a row in the middle of the week, went up, did some lobbying, went up again for a press conference, and then just last week on Wednesday, I was in Richmond for the Virginia March for Life with POW Now. POW is an is a anti-abortion organization that is progressive, so they're the progressive anti-abortion uprising. It takes on abortion from a leftist perspective, a progressive perspective on why it's wrong. And they're also very pro-rescue. In fact, they're the only major pro-rescue, pro-life organization right now. So I've joined with them as an organizer, not because I necessarily agree with all of their values, but I'm committed to nonviolence and inclusivity, which are their two core principles. And I'm also committed to the things that they're doing, mutual aid, direct action, all those types of things that really make social movements successful. And so I'm really excited to be working with them, really excited to see where that takes me. And I'm sure that you guys will be having lots of content relating to things that I'm doing with them, with things that are going on in the pro-life space regarding them, especially with Rescue. There's some cases going on with FACE coming up, the FACE Act, and so we'll be talking about those when those come up. Um, be talking about some of the court cases that are coming up, dealing with abortion, all of that stuff. We'll cover that here, and I'll be able to bring you guys kind of a unique new perspective 
from not only a Christian conservative perspective, but also from the viewpoint of being able to work with an organization that is progressive. And doing that is really just exciting. I'm very excited to be working with them. And so we're going to get into our topic for today in just a minute, which is justice for the five. Uh, But first, I want to talk about how the show is going to be formatted, how our scheduling is going to be from now on, just to keep things consistent. So how it's going to work for now is that on Wednesdays, we will have a three-part episode. And so the first segment of our Wednesday episodes will be some sort of news topic, maybe sometimes two smaller news topics. That'll be followed by some sort of theological or philosophical or like cultural commentary piece where we're just talking about a general idea, more of an idea space. And then the last piece of our Wednesday episodes will be a culture review. So today I'm reviewing a book. You might see me review music, review a movie, review something, and just talking about trying to expose you guys to some of the culture and cultural commentary that's out there that's really helping build the Christian counterculture that we want to see. And so on Fridays, for now, our Friday episodes will be going off of our Image of God series that we started before I went on break. And so you'll be able to see that. And so each Friday we'll be covering an Imago Day topic and really looking at the implications of the image of God when it comes to our engagement with a lot of sanctity of life issues. So that all being said, I'm excited. Let's get into our topics for today, starting with Justice for the Five. So if you haven't heard of Justice for the Five, it's an anti-abortion pro-life movement within the pro-life movement that's been going on for about two years now. We're coming up on the second anniversary of the event that launched Justice for the Five. So I'm going to explain to you guys the timeline of Justice for the Five, explain to you the recent updates and the things that I was able to do in D.C. and kind of how all this is coming together, coming up on their second anniversary. So on March 25th of 2022, Lauren Handy and Teresa Bakovinak, who are two activists with POW, were on their way to Sidewalk Council at the Washington Surgery Center in Washington, D.C. Sidewalk counseling, if you don't know, is where people stand on the sidewalk, hand out literature, hand out resources to women who are going in who are abortion-minded. The Washington Surgery Center is an abortion clinic that's notorious for performing late-term abortions. The abortionist there, Cesare Santangelo, has been caught on camera by live action and undercover videos admitting to committing illegal partial and post-birth abortions. And so sidewalk counseling at a clinic like that is really important. It's really critical because you want to help these women who are very likely in late-term pregnancies when they're going in there and encourage them to choose life, that they don't have to go for those options. And if you're someone who's ever in a crisis pregnancy, there are so many resources out there that are there to support you financially, to pay your bills, to give you material goods that you may need. All that exists and is is available. And so they were on their, Teresa and Lauren were on their way there to sidewalk council. When they arrived there, they saw a Curtis Bay medical waste truck outside. And knowing what would likely be in some of the boxes there, they approached the driver and asked them if they could take one of the boxes because they suspected that there was bodies in there. You know, the bodies of aborted babies, maybe just some fetal tissue. Really, what you would expect to find in there is probably a lot of gauze, a lot of those types of things. And in addition to that, some maybe pulverized fetal tissue and stuff. And so they they said, you know, 
I'm going to take this box. If there are any fetal remains into it, we really just want to give those babies a funeral and a burial. And so the driver agreed, gave them the box, and they took it back to Lauren's apartment. Before they opened the box, before I did anything, they called a bunch of experts who pro-life activists and doctors who had handled fetal remains before. And then they called a deacon, a photographer, and a journalist to come and be present when they opened this box to make sure everything was recorded, documented, done correctly. So when they opened the box, they expected to find at most some of those pulverized tissue. And, you know, even that is very traumatic. That's a, that would be a very traumatic thing to go to. And having talked to Teresa, you know, what they end up going through here is even worse. But the shock of expecting pul- pulverized tissue and then opening it up and what they found and what Lauren said when they opened that box is babies. It's all babies. And inside were these plastic blue containers, 110 of them, that had first trimester fetuses inside, aborted fetuses. So the bodies of first trimester babies in here. And so they end up finding 110 of those fetal remains. And they're taking them out and they're, you know, just one by one, document it all on camera have journalists there, have the deacon there to, you know, perform prayer, to perform a funeral mass afterwards. And then after they finish pulling this out, Lauren reaches in and realizes there are there are five bigger containers at the bottom. And so they realize very quickly what those could be. And that would be third trimester bodies, bodies of children who are aborted in the third trimester, meaning they were very fully developed and appear very human. And so when we have that, that is, you know, that's really shocking to do. So Lauren reaches in to this to this box, pulls it out, and the first baby she pulls out is just definitely third trimester. It's really, you know, it's really traumatizing for them. And so Lauren and Teresa are able to get out these five babies, and they're and they're looking at these bodies, and they realize that at least three of them appear to be the victims of partial birth or, in one case, post-birth abortion. And if you don't know what those are, partial birth abortion is where the child is born alive, is partially alive when it's born, and and in the process of of the child being removed, they snip the neck, and then they suction out the brain through that, causing the skull to collapse. And so that was practice was banned federally for being really inhumane. And then post-birth abortion is where the child is born and then is just allowed to die afterwards. And one of the babies that they found drowned in their own amniotic fluid. We don't know the gender of that baby because it drowned in its own amniotic sac. And so, you know, to find these things is really shocking. And then to realize that these could be evidence of federal crimes committed by Cesare Santangelo becomes even more shocking and devastating and so immediately they contact their lawyers and they and they set up a meeting with the police that they're gonna they're gonna take the they give the 110 to the deacon to have a funeral mass and to be buried they name all 110 babies and they name the five and and the five are named harriet holly christopher x phoenix and
and on hell. And so these five children, these bodies that they find, they they leave them in there in Lauren's apartment and they call the police and they get in contact with the police. The police and them arrange that, okay, leave the door to the apartment unlocked. We'll come get them tonight and take them back. And so in the morning they go back to Lauren and Teresa head back to the apartment to double check and see, okay, were the bodies actually taken? When they get there, Lauren is arrested outside of her apartment by the FBI for a completely separate incident where she violated the FACE Act by crossing abortion property, abortion facility property lines and going inside to continue talking to women, performing what's known as a rescue. And in a future episode, we're going to talk about rescue because it is the future of the pro-life movement and it is absolutely critical to seeing abortion end in America. But just for the sake of this story, Lauren was arrested by the FBI for a completely unrelated thing. Teresa films the whole thing. Then she goes inside the apartment after Lauren has been taken away to see if these bodies are still there. To her surprise, the the bodies of the five are still there. And so she calls her lawyers and says, hey, what's up? And the police at this point have backtracked and said, oh, no, 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 we can't come take them. Someone has to be there to give them over to us. We can't just come in and get them. And so, which is really odd that they didn't know that at first. And so that whole situation becomes kind of, weird but the police come they take the bodies they're taken to the dc medical examiner these babies are still being held at the dc medical examiner and no autopsy has been performed on them despite the fact that it seems very evident that three of these babies were very likely victims of federally illegal abortion procedures and the dc medical examiner has not performed autopsies after this Teresa and Lauren held a press conference with Powell, and there was an immediate response from Congress, especially Anna Paulina Luna, a representative, and Senator Ted Cruz. Both of them helped lead letters, were very vocal about, like, we need to get justice for these babies. What can we do? What can we do? But there wasn't really any, and they called on the DOJ to investigate. Well, there was never really any follow up on that. The DOJ declined to investigate, and Congress obviously moved on to other pressing issues. And so during this whole time, there also becomes a national movement coalescing around the DC-5 because Pow publishes the pictures of these five babies. And they become the face of what late-term abortion is. And not just that, but the face of what abortion itself is. That it, it is the destruction of innocent human life. And so... As we have this national movement forming, major pro-life organizations getting aboard, everyone coalescing around these victims. And for two years, there has been calling for justice. And this national movement has sustained. I mean, this national movement, for me personally, seeing these pictures of the five, that was the turning point for me when abortion became not just a political issue, but something real. It, It went from being an idea to Abortion is actually murder, not just conceptually, but really. And seeing the victims of that was horrifying, and it was just tragic. And like that impact, that shift, really is what radicalized me in terms of we need to end abortion. It is absolutely more than just an evil. It is the utmost evil that we see in our country and in our world. It is the utmost evil that Christians have to oppose because it is... It is just the complete destruction of the image of God. 
And so two years of going through this for these babies. And then in February of 2024, they find out through a lawyer involved in Lauren's face case that the DOJ has ordered the destruction of these babies. Two years later, likely for two reasons. First of all, it's been two years. It's been long enough that the DOJ probably feels like Congress isn't paying attention anymore. Let me just, you know, speak to the DC medical examiner and see if we can get these babies destroyed and wipe our hands of that. The second reason is because Lauren's argument in this face case is that she violated the property lines and blockaded this abortion facility to prevent federal crimes. And these babies would be proof that she was doing that with the intent to prevent federal crimes. And so they don't want her to win the face case. And so they're destroying that evidence. And so when we got the news that these babies were going to be incinerated, I ended up traveling to DC, spent a couple of days lobbying on the Hill, on Capitol Hill, talking to congressmen, talking to their staffers, and just there was, there was a lot of movement there from major organizations, not just POW, but with the support of SBA list, and then majorly SBA list, and then eventually Students for Life and Concerned Women for America both jumped on. Concerned Women for America also a huge help. And so these groups kind of mobilizing sent a letter, a coalition letter with over 35 pro-life organizations. And so that really helped. And we were successful. We were able to stop the DOJ and the DC medical examiner from destroying these babies. We were able to stop their bodies from being incinerated. And so following that, the next week, we were lucky enough to have Chip Roy, who is one of the leading people speaking out about the five and speaking out about the FACE Act, he and five other congressmen hosted a press conference with POW, were able really to do that. So I was back in D.C. for that. And and there was a commitment there, a real commitment, that, that there's going to be follow-up, even in writing in one of the letters, that there will be investigations done by Congress. And so that's very encouraging. And so that is really thanks to the mobilization, too, that when we find out those guys are going to be incinerated, pro-life activists across the country mobilized, called their senators, wrote their representatives, got on the phone with all, all of their reps, contacted them, flooded them, and so the, they really got to hear that people care. People care about these babies. People care about Harriet and Holly and Angel and Christopher X and Phoenix because they're real people. And so that was really encouraging to see so many people mobilize around these children. So continuing to take action on this issue on Justice for the Five, continuing to push for this, but the full story, the pictures of these children, which I really encourage you to look at, are at jfor5.com, J-F-O-R, the number five, dot com. I encourage you to go look at these babies to read their story in greater detail than what I've said here, because they really are the face of what abortion is. And we have to remember that these are people we're talking about people when we're talking about abortion. We're talking about individuals created in the image of God. And when we're talking about that, it is desecration. It is, it is desecration to see that life destroyed. And it really runs contrary to the commandment. Jesus said, Jesus said the greatest commandment is this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Of, we love God as Christians. That's our primary calling. Love God, spread the gospel. 
but our secondary commandment is to love our neighbor as ourselves. And there is nothing loving about allowing your preborn neighbor to die. To die by the thousands every day in this nation and to die by the tens of thousands every day in this world. That is not loving your neighbor. There is nothing loving about that. And that has no place in Christian culture. When we talk about on this podcast is building a Christian counterculture. And if we're building a Christian counterculture, it has to be a culture of life, a a culture that affirms life, that seeks to create somewhere where life is celebrated and sustained. and, And really, that is the driving factor of what Christianity is, right? The gospel and life. When we are made a new creation in Christ, we have abundant life in him. Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. The life. He's the way to salvation. He, he is the truth, the absolute moral truth, the absolute objective truth. And he is the life, the giver of life, the source of life. He calls himself the bread of life, the water that leaves you so you never thirst. And so when we see how highly life is held in Scripture, when we see how highly Christ valued life, when we see that the Bible affirms what we know to be true about life beginning in the womb, because you have to remember that the fact that life begins in the womb, that life starts at conception, is something that is, is made available through general revelation, through scientific knowledge, through, through studying the world. We can know that without faith, without religion. But the fact that not only is it revealed through general revelation, but the Bible affirms it in God's special revelation. He affirms it multiple times in Scripture. I think back to Jeremiah where it talks about, For I knit you together in your mother's womb. In in the psalm, you were fearfully and wonderfully made. In your mother's womb, I knew you. The fact that John the Baptist leapt for joy at the news of Jesus in his mother's womb life in the womb is affirmed and upheld throughout scripture the value of human life and of course this can all be summed up under the 10 commandments of do not murder in exodus do not murder and so we as christians must stand for these five babies because they were of all the babies that they represent and their story and their lives are valuable and so are the lives of the 110 and so are the lives of all the children that are lost to abortion. And standing for these five, that is representative. If we can get justice for these five, that creates a movement, that creates social change, that changes the hearts of people when they engage and see these images and see these stories and see the these babies being treated as people. Because once you see these five treated as people, it's really hard, it's really hard to start forgetting It's really, really hard to look at abortion the same way because once you see these five babies as people, once these the humanity of these five babies is affirmed to the nations by giving them justice, then then we have to face as a people, as a country, as a world, we have to look at, oh my goodness, if these five babies are people, then what about all these other babies that are dying in the womb? And so it's so important to call for justice for the five, to call for justice for all the children, all the preborn children, 
loss to abortion. All the preborn children at risk of abortion. That is loving your neighbor. It's protecting their life fundamentally because with what authority can we as Christians speak on any other issues that affect life? How can we speak on homelessness and poverty when we don't speak out vigorously against abortion, which says the solution to homelessness and poverty is killing the child who might be born into it? How are we going to speak about, about uplifting and caring for the disabled when abortion, when we don't speak out on abortion and abortion says the best way to deal with disability is to kill that child in the womb? How are we going to speak out about adoption and foster care and reforming those systems of food stamps, of, of caring, even caring for the environment when we're not speaking out vigorously against something that says the solution to all these problems is just to kill the person before they're born? You want to solve immigration? Just, just kill the babies before they're born. You know, like you're worried about our population getting out of control. You're worried about people coming here illegally. Oh, oh well. You're worried. You're worried about the way that the immigrant is treated here. Well, you know, we can't really offer you solutions for that, but we can offer you the solution of if you're worried that your child as an immigrant might be born into a bad situation, don't have the baby. Actually, just kill them in the womb, because. Abortion is presented as a solution to every social issue. And so if we as Christians are not speaking out against abortion, then we are affirming it as a solution. There is no middle ground on abortion, and, and these five babies, they prove that. The lives of these five babies should prove that to every Christian, that there's no middle ground when it comes to abortion. You're either for the protection of innocent human life, or you are against it. You're either for abortion, which is the taking of an innocent human life, or you're against it. If you say, oh, well, I'm against abortion in my personal life, I would never get one, but I'm not against it on like a broader like scale like that's, that's not my business, then you're actually for abortion. You are for abortion happening because you're pro-legal access to abortion. And that is something that a nation cannot stand upon. It is... It is the greatest societal sin that has been committed in American history, in my opinion. Because with nothing else have we seen such a massive loss of life. In, in the world, there has been no human rights crisis that has resulted in more death than abortion. And there are other social sins that we have in our past, especially as Americans, like slavery as a world like the Holocaust. But if we are looking at just the number of people who've died, abortion puts every other crisis and war and everything we've had to shame in terms of lives lost. In the United States alone, 900,000 children a year. That's according to the Gottmacher Institute, which is the research arm of Planned Parenthood. It's also worth noting these numbers we're getting from the Gutmacher Institute, there's no national abortion reporting law, and so states like California and New York, which have some of the most legal, legal access to abortion, some of the widest access to abortion, don't actually report the numbers of abortions in their states. And so 900 plus thousand children a year. In the world, in the globe, according to the World Health Organization, 73 million abortions a year. 73 million lives lost every single year. And yet we as Christians are afraid to speak out about this, afraid to speak out about even something as blatant as these five babies. 
these five who have faces and names and stories and lives that were lost, we won't even stand up for them because it's too controversial. It's such a nuanced topic. But in the end, are we really loving our neighbor if we're not opposing the legalization of their death? Not only that, when we're talking about the woman, abortion harms women as well. It harms the woman who has the abortion. It harms the father who has lost his child. Every party involved in abortion is hurt, betrayed, or killed in the case of their preborn child. There is nothing redeeming about abortion. Nothing redeeming about the, the intentional taking of innocent human life. The intentional murder of children, of whom Jesus proclaimed he had a, a special love. He says it's better for a millstone to be put around your neck than for you to lead children as, astray. So you know what's even worse than leading children astray? Leading them to the slaughter. Allowing them to be slaughtered. I just think we really need to confront this because a lot of Christians will say, yeah, I believe abortion is murder, but then we don't act like it. And if there's something, the reason that I encourage you to go to jfor5.com and look at these pictures and read the story is because this will make you act like it. This will make abortion real to you. Not just a concept, not just a political issue, not just a social issue. It's real. It's a real crisis taking place down the street from you in your state, in your community. If you're in a state with abortion that's been banned, that's wonderful. Guess what? you can drive somewhere else in the country and it's still taking place. There are people in your state who are flying or traveling out of state to get abortions. It's still affecting your community. Until abortion is made illegal, unthinkable, and unnecessary, it will always damage our society and damage our world and damage the souls of men and women and, and result in the loss of the souls of children. So let's not Christians dilly-dally on this issue anymore. Let's not be wishy-washy. Let's be very clear. Only 4% of churches have preached a sermon that even mentions abortion. According to Pew Research, by the way. Not a Christian or conservative organization. According to Pew Research. only four, They could only find, they looked at all sermons that were published online. And this is recent data, so in a post-COVID world where the majority of churches in America have some form of online video format. So they looked at all of those, and only 4% of churches had sermons on abortion. Not just sermons on abortion, by the way, sermons that even mentioned abortion. Even mentioned it. It's, it's time. We, as the church, need to be the first in our society to repent of the sin of abortion, of the social sin of abortion, because it has destroyed families. It has destroyed men, women, and children. It has destroyed communities. It has destroyed, it has destroyed so much. How can we say that we are loving our neighbors when we're allowing them to die? To close on that note, please, jfor5.com, read the baby's story. Look at their pictures. Find out how you can help demand justice for them and take action. Okay. Our next section where is we're going to be talking about the role of Christianity really in both creating and redeeming culture because we have this strange idea that 
Christianity is to be set apart from the world in a really odd way, not in a way as if we live differently from the world, which if you look at scripture and, and at what it talks about, Christians are meant to be set apart in the sense that we live differently from the world. We're unique from the world. But we've kind of taken it to this extreme of we withdraw from the world entirely, which is entirely antithetical to the missional idea of evangelism, spreading the gospel. There seems there's this idea prevalent, especially in fundamentalist American Christianity, that the best thing to do is to completely withdraw, completely withdraw from the world, abstain from any, any and everything that is of this world and try to live in a, in, a, in a little bubble and then do our evangelism where we just go out into the dark, evil places and then we whoop right back into our bubble. And that's not, that's not the model of Christian life that Jesus walked in his ministry. That's not the model of Christian life that's taught in the Bible. And so I, I would like to remind us that the culture of the kingdom of God, because we talk about building culture, and so in opposition to the culture of the world is the culture of the kingdom of God. And the culture of the kingdom of God encompasses all peoples, tribes, nations, and tongues. We see that repeated in Revelation several times. All peoples, tribes, nations, and tongues. Which means that the culture of the kingdom of God is incredibly diverse. And that means that it, it, it incorporates the cultures of the world. Because we have to remember that God will redeem creation. He's coming to redeem creation, to redeem the world, not to destroy it. And that includes physical, physical creation. He created this in the beginning, remember, and said that it was very good. And then it was marred by sin after the fall. And so we see that that will be redeemed, including the things of this world that currently are perverted. The, the different cultures of, this, of the different nations of the world, the, the different aspects of those cultures, the music, the art, the literature, everything that makes a culture unique will all be redeemed in new creation, in new heaven and new earth. And even more so, when we examine Christian, when we examine Christian history, it has always taken existing culture and redeemed it for the glory of God. It hasn't run away from it. It hasn't tried to destroy it. It takes it and it redeems it. You know, you even look back to as early as the New Testament, where Paul is making his argument. He takes he when he's arguing to the to the Romans about, you know, the one true God, he takes their culture, this, this monument they have to the unknown God, and he redeems that as part of his argument for the existence of the one true God. And so that's a really, like, simple expl explanation of it, but we see that Christians redeem culture, redeem things. We see when it comes to architecture, we see, have seen the church take and redeem architecture and make it beautiful when it comes to art and music and literature some of those beautiful art music literature even science many of of many of the most prominent scientists throughout history were christian and they were doing they were they're living out their lives for god's glory and they were bringing that christian culture their christian values that biblical worldview into the field that they were in, and they were redeeming that field for Christ. They weren't running away from a field like science, like like academia, like the arts, like education, things that today we think are very dominated by secularism, because they are. They're very dominated by secularism and progressivism. But they didn't run away. 
they walked into these spaces and redeemed them for the glory of God. That's what we need to continue doing today as Christians. We need to be redeeming culture for the glory of God. And, and of course, we must also be creating culture, creating things that actually add cultural value to our world. But at the same time, redeeming the things that exist for the glory of God. And that's all I have to say on that. We'll probably, and that's something that we'll continue to talk about as this podcast goes on about what parts of culture can we redeem? Because there's a lot there that we think that our inclination is that has been tainted by darkness. We throw it away, we cast out, we destroy it. But there are people involved in those institutions that need to be saved. And there, there is good and truth and beauty often just perverted there. And so how can we redeem it? How can we restore the image of God to this world? How can we restore things to that that level of truth and beauty of goodness that God expects? Okay, the last thing that I have for today, I'm going to be doing a book review of the book Suburbianity by Byron Forrest Yawn. This is a nonfiction book. It's a Christian book that I read recently, and I think it really speaks to something. It was very challenging to the way that I view things. It, it was very, very good read, and I would highly recommend it to everyone. I have it here on screen, Suburbianity by Bry Byron Forrest Yawn. What have we done to the gospel? Can we find our way back to biblical Christianity? So this book really looks at what has the American suburban church, the quote-unquote Christian suburbs, done to the gospel. We've, we've really removed the, it as the central focus of church. Church has become more about motivational sermons, things things you. We've made it very us-centered and not gospel-centered. And I, I'm not going to try to summarize this book because I can in no way do it justice. I, I just recommend that you go and read it. But it's really important to understand that the, the gospel should always be centered at church. Whether you're preaching an exegetical sermon or a topical sermon, the gospel should be at the center of that as a pastor or as just a Christian teacher. The gospel should be at the center. It should always be implicit in the message you're giving. If, if, you're, if you're a Christian speaker, you know, going to speak on a specific topic, I think that's a little different. I'm not asking for, a, I, you know, this book doesn't advocate for, and my understanding, it's not a full gospel presentation every time a Christian speaks about anything. But the gospel and the redeeming power of the gospel is the core of our lives as Christians. And so its presence should be implicit in everything we talk about. And so everything we talk about should flow from the gospel and point back to the gospel. And especially when you're going to church on a Sunday, the gospel should be presented every Sunday because people are lost and we need to hear the gospel. And those of us that are saved need to be reminded of the gospel in our fervor for why we want to share it. This book also just really challenged me in terms of the assumptions we make about who is in need of salvation because we go to the suburbs where people are well off and they're affluent and we never see a lot of heavy missional work being done there. Our missional work is always directed at the urban centers or the third world, places where there's like visible poverty, and we feel like these people need Jesus. But in a way, that's putting ourselves, you know, it's creating two tiers, where we assume just because people are well off in a middle class, and we just assume that they have Christ, that they're generally good people, and that they're saved, when really we don't know 
And so we should be preaching and sharing the gospel to everyone. And we should feel just as worried for the homeless man that walks into our congregation as the middle-class businessman that walks in. We should feel just as concerned that both of them need the gospel. And I think that's something that I was really challenged on, on, a, on that implicit bias that I have of, oh, I do assume that some people, because of their material conditions or whatever, need the gospel more than others. And that's just not true. And so this book was actually written in 2013, but I think it has become much more relevant in a post-COVID world with the explosion of the online church and the growth of the megachurch since 2013 as a, as a type of phenomenon in American culture. And so I really think that this book is almost more relevant now than it was when it was written. And I just happened upon this book in a thrift store. They were literally selling books for $1, so I was able to pick it up and buy it because it looked interesting. And it has completely shifted the way that I view the American church and what some of the it's just really exposed a lot of the flaws to me and so i'm going to just read you kind of how he sets up his argument in this book and he sets it up by giving a list of a bunch of statements and and these statements are things that then throughout the book he explains why these things are true and how it's damaging that we actually do believe some of these things so i'm just going to read through these statements the Bible is not a spiritual handbook. Morality is not a Christian worldview. Family values are not synonymous with Christianity. Christianity is spiritual, but spirituality is not necessarily Christian. Humanitarianism is not the chief aim of the church. Christianity is not about being happy, but does result in joy. You cannot find God's will for your life in the popular sense in the Bible. Being a Christian is not about being a good person. You will not have your best life in this existence. God may not want you to be rich. He may want you to be poor. Wealth is not a sign of God's favor. The church does not grow as a result of strategic planning. Most contemporary Christian music isn't. Many Christian books aren't. You don't need Jesus to be happy. Struggling with sin is a normal part of the Christian life. Moral or affluent people need the gospel just as much as immoral or poor people. America has never been a Christian nation. The rich young ruler would not have been saved if he had sold everything. Suffering is a normal part of life and not something to be escaped. Preaching from the Bible doesn't ensure faithfulness to the Bible's message. Austere living is not a sign of spiritual devotion. The gospel is not about escaping hell or getting to heaven. Culturally relevant messages are often disconnected from the actual point of the Bible. God did not save you because you have intrinsic value. Preaching about a need for biblical preaching is not biblical preaching. There is no essential difference between local and world missions. Vegetables can't sing. You are not a better person for having become a Christian. You should not pattern your life after Joseph, David, Daniel, or any other biblical character. Jabez only wanted some land. Church is not where you go to escape the influence of the world. God does not love you more if you read your Bible and pray. Sinners, even the worst you can imagine, are not your enemies. Church attendance is not a sign of faithfulness to Christ. A Christian president will not save our country or the world. Having devotions is not an indicator of spiritual discipline. A moral majority threatens the heart of Christianity. The best thing you can do for morally upright people is assume they are lost. Finding your purpose in life is not the most important thing you can do. Placing your faith in your parents' religion is damning. Schooling choices are not signs of spirituality or good parenting. Freedom of religion may not be good for Christianity. Christian movies has become a punchline. Atheists can be good people too. 
The gospel and Christ are left out of many church services. Principles for living taken from the Bible are often distortions of the Bible. Legislating morality is not helpful. Knowing the gospel is not evidence of believing it. No one has been a Christian his entire life. Abortion is not what's wrong with America. Jesus would be confused in many of our church services. Christ is hard to find in most Christian bookstores. Second Chronicles 7.14 has nothing to do with America. Being angry at sinners for being sinners is not a sufficient evangelism strategy. These are a list of statements that even now as I'm reading them still challenge me. They are actively challenging to what we as American suburban Christians, at least that's my background. If that's not your background, I think we all know what American suburban evangelical Christianity looks like. Those are things that we hold to be true. And, the, and, and those statements challenge that. Being reminded of the truth and being confronted with that truth is, is very challenging. And so that's kind of what the book does. It delves into what has happened to the gospel. Why do we take offense at these statements that are very evidently true when we look back to Scripture, when we look back to church history, when we look back to just logical reasoning, when we look at the experiences of Christians, when we, when we look at all these things that we use to do theology and, and to measure the accuracy of something, this book, Suburbianity, holds up really well. It, it is a really integrated biblical argument of, that, that really just goes through those statements and says, you know, you know what? I'm it Yawn makes a sustained argument for why we have distorted the gospel, why we have decentered the gospel, how we can get it back, and why we need to confront these statements head on and be very open about these are the truth. These statements are the truth. And even though that may make us uncomfortable, that's how it is. And so I really would encourage everyone to go get a copy of this book. Again, it was written in 2013, but I think it's more relevant now than it's ever been. And so in the future, you can expect us to keep reviewing books, keep reviewing other pieces of culture that I think are helpful in building a Christian counterculture. Because I think that Christianity is really countercultural to what I would describe not just as secular leftism and secular progressivism and all these things because there are, there are things in leftism and progressivism by the way that that Christianity should take that Christianity should redeem just like there are things in conservatism and right wingism that Christianity should redeem but not all of it and I think in our moral suburban family values world we see Christianity as just part of our culture in a lot of places, especially where I'm from in the Midwest, especially here in the South where I'm living now, Christianity is woven into the fabric of the American suburb where it's just it just is. And so we assume that most people that are moral are good people, and, and we forget that they need Christ. We forget that the gospel is central. And instead, we end up with this weird Christianese culture that's not really Christian. And so a Christian counterculture is centered on the gospel and will challenge both that world of suburban Christianity and secularism. Challenges both. Challenges, right, when Jesus came, he didn't just challenge 
the Gentiles, he challenged the Jews too. He challenged the Pharisees, the religious people. We see that Christianity from Jesus himself challenges the moral and the immoral. And so Christian counterculture, if we, if we really want to build that, if we want to build a Christian counterculture, it has to be rooted in that. It has to be rooted in the gospel. And so I just really recommend this book. I think it gives us a great diagnosis of the problems going on and a great offer to solutions. And even just for virtue of being able to go through those pages of statements and see on the page which ones are the ones that challenge you the most, that I know for me that there are ones on that list that just like, ooh, reading them like hits. It hit the first time, it hits again about like, I have to make sure I'm not falling into that lie. So yeah, um, we'll close as we always do with John 1, 5. I'll leave you guys with a message of hope. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness shall not overcome it. Look forward to seeing you guys on Friday, Image of God series, starting out with abortion and we're gonna delve really, do a deep dive into that. All right. Thanks, guys.